All right, we are going to continue looking in the book of Jude today. Gibson laid out eight identifiers of Christians that we can see in the first two verses in the book of Jude. That we are a servant, or maybe better translated, a slave. Brother, we are called, we are beloved, we are kept. And then I'm going to cover the last three, which are mercy, peace, and love. So three words today. I'm going to run through each one of them. And with each one, we're going to look at what it means. You know, what's the definition of the word? Um, help us understand how it's used in Scripture. We're going to look at uh, how it applies to God's relationship to us. And then how it applies to our relationship with each other. Um, it's always interesting preparing for a sermon. You get to find out how little you really know. Um, I started preparing for this and I thought, okay, first word is mercy. I've got this one because maybe a year and a half ago or something, Gregoire asked me to uh, we were going through a series in Sunday school on different words in the Bible, and he said, all right, can can you do one week? And I said, yeah. And he goes, okay, you have the word mercy. And I was like, all right. I, at the time, thought, all right, I know what mercy is. I always had this understanding that mercy and grace were kind of two opposites, or people say like two sides of the same coin, where grace is God giving you something you don't deserve, and mercy is him not giving you the punishment you do deserve, right? And yes, kind of, uh, but as uh, I dug into the word, I found out that I didn't really understand it very well. So I felt good about coming into this sermon going, okay, I've got the first one. The other ones are easy, right? Then dig into it, start studying, find out, yeah, I didn't know what they meant either. So, uh, or partially understood what they meant maybe is uh, more accurate. So what does mercy really mean? Well, it can mean not getting punished the way you deserve, right? That is one definition, although that's not how it's used most in the Bible. Um, the way it is used in the Bible, another translation would be kindness or compassion. Let me read you a story. Uh, this is uh, Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. And I think we will see in this passage how the word mercy is used pretty clearly. Uh, so it says, and they, that's Jesus and the disciples, came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, or sorry, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him, be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and called him. And they called the blind man saying, take heart. Get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, 
he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Right? So here's Bartimaeus sitting by the roadside. And Jesus is coming by and he yells, have mercy on me. Well, if you take just the definition that I always thought of mercy of not getting a punishment you deserve, it doesn't really make sense, right? Jesus was not walking along the road and being like, I'm about to smart, smite Bartimaeus, right? Or I'm going to like punish it. No, he was just walking past him. So clearly this is not what Bartimaeus meant when he said, have mercy on me, right? Jesus, hearing the question, says, what do you want me to do for you? Right? This is about compassion. This is about kindness toward Bartimaeus. When you look at the definition of mercy, uh, I looked it up in a few different Bible dictionaries. Uh, Vine's Dictionary says, the outward manifestation of pity, it assumes need on the part of him who receives it, and resources adequate to meet the need on the part of him who shows it, right? And I think we can see those clearly with Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus clearly had a need, right? He was blind. He clearly understood that he had a need and called out to Jesus. And he wouldn't have called out to Jesus if he didn't think Jesus had the power to heal him, right? He wasn't calling out to everyone walking down the road. He heard it was Jesus of Nazareth and he called out. So he knew he had a need. He knew Jesus could fill the need. Um, in every definition I looked at of mercy emphasizes this part, this idea of the people receiving mercy have a need, right? You can't show compassion to somebody who has everything, right? If I go up to some rich, famous person and say, like, here's a dollar, that's not really doing anything, right? Um, so th it's this idea that it has to have a need. Mercy and grace, I always thought of as opposites, but they're mo much closer to being synonyms when you're thinking about the definition of mercy being compassion. And they're used almost interchangeably throughout the New Testament. there is a little bit of a difference. And the difference between the two is grace is God doing something for us because he knows we're guilty. And mercy is God doing something for us because he knows we're miserable. Right? Grace is saying, you know what? You're guilty. You're a sinner. You need salvation. Right? And mercy is God just saying, hey, you have a need in your life, I'm going to fill that need for you, right? I see that you're lacking, and I'm going to provide something. So grace is more focused on the fact that we're sinners and we're guilty. Mercy, more on the fact that we're needy. One other passage here in Matthew chapter 12. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. 
But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Have you not? And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or how have you not read how on the in the law, how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, and he quotes the Old Testament, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then the next passage is Jesus healing the withered man's hand on the Sabbath, with the priests looking at him, seeing if he's going to you know, do a work on the Sabbath, and Jesus has mercy on him and heals his hand. But I find this interesting, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And, and when I started to understand more what the word mercy meant, I felt like this sentence took on a whole new meaning, right? God is saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the sacrifice was taking a lamb or some animal and sacrificing it on the altar, right? And God is saying, I want mercy. In other words, if there's a hungry person over there, don't take your lamb and burn it on the altar. Cook him some food. Have mercy on him rather than fulfilling your you know, church duties and sacrificing it on the altar. Uh, I think this is a great example to us because if you're like me, I can get caught up doing churchy things, making sure I'm at church on Sunday and you know, doing this and doing that and cooking for a potluck. I'm just kidding. I've never cooked for a potluck. My wife and daughter cooks for potlucks. But right, we can get caught up in all these church things we're supposed to be doing instead of being the church instead of doing the things that God wants us to do and doing uh, the good works that God has laid out for us. Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for, great, for by grace you have been saved. So hopefully now we understand more what mercy is. We understand that God, every time he's providing for us, is him showing us mercy. Right? Every provision, every day that he provides for us. The challenges I leave you with with mercy are, are you prioritizing being at church instead of being the church? And do you look to God for mercy? Right? I think I'm very guilty of this. I have needs. But am I humble enough to admit that I have needs and to call out to God for it? You see Bartimaeus on the roadside calling out, and people are like, Shh, be quiet, shut up. And he calls out louder and louder. Right? And he tells Jesus that he has this need. Right? Jesus already knew it. He's blind, pretty clear, right? But Jesus knows our needs already also. And we should be calling out to Jesus repeatedly praying, telling him our needs, asking him to provide and to show mercy on us. And we should be showing mercy to those around us, right? If you see a need, 
even if it means you skip church on a Sunday morning to go take care of somebody who has a need, right? God would rather you show mercy to that person than to just show up here because you're supposed to, right? We want to make sure that we're showing mercy to those around us. The second word uh, in verse 2 here is peace. And I would have defined peace as the absence of conflict, right? And that is at least partially the definition of the word being used here. But the word in the New Testament for peace goes deeper than that. Um, and I found a great story that illustrates it. Jim Walton was a missionary in the jungles of Colombia, and he was translating the Bible into the native language. And he was having trouble figuring out how to translate the word peace to them and how to uh, you know, write that in the scripture. And around this time, there was another missionary who was going to fly in on a plane for something. And the chief of the village had to go on a journey somewhere. It was like a three days walk through the jungle. And the missionary said, hey, we have a plane coming in. We could fly you there in like 20 minutes. Right? Why don't you just wait for this plane to come? So the guy waits for the plane. The plane's late. So he gets upset and he's like, well, now I'm behind because, you know, I waited for the plane. Now I got to start walking. He starts walking on his three-day walk. After a little while, the plane shows up. Somebody from the village goes, runs after him. Gets to the chief. Hey, chief, chief, the plane's here. Come back. This, you know, We'll put you on the plane. He comes back only to find out there's a miscommunication, and now the plane left. Right? So he left. He waited. He left. He comes back. Now he still has to go back on the three-day journey again, and he's just kind of flipping out and yelling and screaming as we all could understand. And the missionary happened to be videotaping at the time, and he looks at the videotape later, and he's like, you know, trying to pick out the words that this guy's saying. I'm sure it was difficult as he's shouting and raging. And he's asks one of the villagers, he says, he keeps using the phrase, I don't have one heart. What's he saying? And they said, to have one heart means that there is nothing between you and the other person. And he realized this is how we translate peace to these people, right? The word used in Greek, and I'm not going to try to pronounce Greek words for you guys, right? But the word used in Greek for peace comes from a word that means joined or tied together into a whole, right? That having peace is not just me not having conflict with you. It's we're of one accord. We're of one heart, right? Um, it reminded me of 1 Samuel. In chapter 18, it says, As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Right? They were at peace with each other. Right? It, it's more than just, hey, they weren't fighting together. Right? They were very much together. Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 17 say this. For he, Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us to God both in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. So here we have Scripture basically defining the word peace for us, that Jesus is our peace. He's broken down the wall of hostility between us and God, which we saw uh, a visible representation of when Jesus died on the cross and the veil was torn in two, the veil that separated the people from the Ark of the Covenant, um, from the mercy seat. And it says that he might create in himself one man in place of the two, so making peace, right? That we are joined together with Christ, and that's how we're saved, that God looks at us and he sees Christ instead of seeing our sin because he has made peace with us. Thayer's Bible Dictionary has like six different definitions of peace, but this one really stuck out to me. It says, Peace of Christianity is the tranquil state of the soul, assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot, whatever it is. Right? That we can have real peace when we're saved because we know the end of the story. Right? If you've ever watched the play or listened to the music from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, there's a song where it's like the narrator singing to Joseph and says, you know, go Joseph, fight till you drop. We've read the book and you come out on top. And I love that because it's the same for us, right? The song is referring just to the one book that features Joseph, but we've read the book. We know how our story ends. If we're Christians, we know that we're saved. We have assurance of salvation. And so whatever our earthly lot is, whatever's going on on earth, not saying it won't be difficult, but we can have peace with it because we know how the story ends. So how are we supposed to show peace to others? Well, In Romans 12:18 it says if possible as far as it depends on you live peaceably with all men. Right? So God recognizes you may have somebody in your life who just will not make peace with you. But as much as it depends on you you're supposed to live peaceably. And that doesn't mean you try once and when it doesn't work you go, well yeah, I didn't like him anyway. Right? No, you continue to try to live peaceably with that person, right? But it's not in your control, how that person responds, and God recognizes that. So, as, if possible, as far as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I saw an interesting Facebook conversation the other day. A uh, disc golfer that I'm friends with on Facebook moved to Florida, bought a little house, and he made a post. Uh, there was a big storm, and his neighbor had this big, huge aluminum step ladder out in his yard. And in the storm, it blew over and blew over the fence and hit his house and put a hole in the siding. 
and he says, hey, I'm new to being a homeowner. How do I handle this? And the advice he was getting, there were like 70 comments. The advice he was getting were all over the place. People said, go to your neighbor and tell me he has to pay to fix it. Other people said, file a claim with your insurance company. They'll talk to his insurance company and it'll get fixed. Other people said, hey, if you make the argument that because your, your house has probably faded a little bit over time in the sun, that you won't be able to find siding that matches exactly, you can make the argument that his insurance has to pay to reside your whole house. And then somebody commented and said, but making nice about this and letting it go may go further than trying to make him pay for it. Right? That's living peaceably. Saying, you know what? I'm not going to complain to my neighbor. I'm not going to force him to, to pay it. I'll just take care of it. Uh, you know, If he decides to pay, that's fine. But I'm not going to cause strife between he and I because a, a storm blew over a ladder. Right? Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So a couple of questions for you to think about in terms of peace. Do you focus on the Lord in times of trouble? Right? When things are bad, are you focused on the bad things? Or are you saying, you know what, this is bad, but I know the end of the story. I know the assurance of my salvation. I'm going to focus on the Lord, and that's what's going to get me through. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Probably the most misused verse in all of Scripture, right? He wasn't saying I can, you know, lift a thousand pounds or something. He was saying, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. I know how to make it through any situation. I can get through anything through Christ who strengthens me. Second question, do others see God's peace in you? Are you seen as somebody who worries all the time? Or are you seen as somebody who seems oddly at peace, even though things are bad? And it's almost like you know something that the other person doesn't know. And then maybe they'll ask you about it, and you'll get a chance to share the gospel. All right, the last of the three words here is love. And there are two different words used for love in the Bible. There's agape and phileo. Okay, I tried a couple easy Greek words. Um, and again, I thought I understood the difference between these two words, right? Uh, phileo, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, right? That's brotherly love. And my previous understanding was agape was this like, kind of deeper love that was just God's love toward us, maybe a, a, a more powerful, deeper love that we weren't capable of and, and that the scripture just used it for God loving us. Uh, well, that was completely wrong because when you start looking at all the places where God tells us to love each other, it's always agape. We're never commanded using the other kind of love. We're always commanded to love agape, love one another. Uh, the reason for that um, is that phileo denotes an inclination prompted by sense and emotion. Yes, it's a brotherly love, but it's 
based off of emotion, based off of, hey, I like you. You know, I have a brotherly love toward you uh, because of sense and emotion. Where agape denotes love founded on admiration and esteem. So God doesn't command us to have an emotion. He's saying, I'm commanding you to admire other people and to esteem them above yourself and to put their needs above your needs. First Corinthians 13 says, If I speak of in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I have gained nothing. This is something I think I can be guilty of a lot. Like I might do something that you would say like, oh, that was really nice that you did that. But I might do it spitefully. I might do it out of a sense of duty, not because I'm being loving. Um, we need to make sure that whatever we do, we do it with love. And it's not the emotional love. It's, hey, I'm going to do this for you. Because God said, I'm supposed to put your needs before mine. Vine's dictionary said something about love that I think is super important. And I hope you take this and apply it to your life. It says, love can be known only from the actions it prompts. Love can only be known by the action it prompts, right? So if you love somebody, but you're not doing anything to show that love, they're not going to know it, right? This applies to your spouse, your children, your parents, your relatives, your coworkers, and especially to non-Christians, right? If you're not doing loving things toward non-Christians, then anytime they hear somebody say, oh, Christians are loving or something, they're going to be like, no, they're a bunch of hypocrites. So, take some time and think about how are you showing love? Think about it from the other person's perspective. Would they recognize it as love, as being loving, as putting their needs before your own? And think about different areas of your life. Think about your family, coworkers, people you really don't get along with. Uh, you know, Bible says to love your enemies. I don't feel like I have enemies. That's not the way I view life. But uh, you know, I could probably, if I'm honest with myself, come up with some people I don't get along with. Um, you know, and how am I showing love to those people? All right, and we're going to close with, see if I can get my phone to work here. Here we go. This is Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 13. 
Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you strength to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being. Right? That's an expression of mercy. God saying, hey, you have a need. Let me fill it. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. God loves us. He has made peace with us on the cross. And he wants to give us mercy. Mercy far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. I challenge all of us to be humble enough to think through what are our needs. It can be physical needs, emotional needs, need for wisdom, need for humility. Uh, whatever it is, that we identify those needs in ourselves, that we admit them, and that we be like Bartimaeus and call out to the Lord, asking him to show us mercy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you show us mercy and that you have made peace with us, Lord. We thank you for your love, and we ask that you help us this week and every week to think through those things and, and think how we are showing them to others and how we can continue to show them to others. Please make it obvious and clear to us this week uh, the good works that you set before us, as you always do, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.